Well, it's good to worship together this morning uh, as we continue through this season of Lent that we are in. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we, this is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, which is the season that is modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting and, and facing temptation in the wilderness. Uh, this morning, uh, just a moment ago, we've already seen Jesus in the wilderness during our dwelling time, uh, as, as we've read from that passage in Matthew 4. And, and here, we're going to spend some time focusing in on the second temptation that Jesus faces there. And so I'm going to read that, those verses uh, one more time for us from Matthew chapter 4. You can pull out the dwelling sheet and read along if you'd like. Um, but I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you are a God who meets us and walks with us in the wilderness and even walks with us in the midst of temptation. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've recently been really into watching Law and Order. Uh, any, any Law and Order fans out there? A few people? All right. It's one of the longest running TV shows in America, 20 seasons uh, that it ran from, I think, 1990 to 2010, and then uh, took a break for a while, but has recently started running again uh, with, with new episodes. And so uh, a, a recent episode of, of Law and Order, this show about the, the police who investigate crime, and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders, right? That's how every single episode starts with that description. Uh, a recent episode centered on this place called a content house, uh, which was a residence for teens and young adults, social media influencers, right? It's a place where they all live together, have room and board provided uh, and provided for as long as they kept their social media stats up. As long as they did wild and, and, and crazy things to keep uh, the attention going, they, they were required in order to live there to maintain millions of followers on social media. Uh, and so one of the characters in this episode was this young woman who loved rock climbing. And she got connected with this content house and went to live there and stay there. And she would make videos climbing things to impress people. Right? And that got a lot of attention, so she was able to, to get into this content house. And the manager of this place eventually pressured her into climbing buildings, and then taller buildings, 
and then ultimately uh, skyscrapers, which got a lot of social media attention, right? But eventually, the stunts that she pulled led to injury, and she became paralyzed from the waist down. And her testimony becomes key in the prosecutor's case in this episode as they seek to bring about justice for those who are abusing and, and misusing others. You see, this story from Law and Order is not unlike the second temptation that Jesus faces here in Matthew chapter 4. The devil brings Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down, right? Pull an amazing stunt. Do something to get all kinds of attention. Henry Nowen describes this temptation as the compulsion to be spectacular. The compulsion to be spectacular. We live in a world of media and metrics where spectacle always runs to the front of the line. If you can make a spectacle, then you're going to get attention, right? You're going to get the social media stats on and on. It goes, simple movies with good stories and compelling characters flounder at the box office, while movies with big action sequences and mesmerizing visual effects become blockbusters, right? Because who doesn't love a spectacle? Everybody loves it. It's the world we live in. And you see, if Jesus had thrown himself off the top of the temple and been rescued by angels, just think about how much attention he would have gotten. Just think about immediately the stats that would have boomed, right? He would have become a social media influencer thousands of years before that even existed. Look at this amazing stuntman. Gather around. Let's watch. Let's see what he does next. It would have surely been a great marketing strategy. But Jesus turns it down. Because Jesus does not choose the way of spectacle, but rather the way of humility. Jesus does not choose the way of spectacle, but rather the way of humility. He did not consider equality with God something to be used. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. Right? Jesus, God in the flesh, could have pulled off all kinds of spectacular stunts, one after another after another. It would have been amazing. But he did not use his identity or his power advantage. Rather, he used it for the purpose of service. He used it in order to serve others. Because Jesus does, after all, asks out demons. He feeds multitudes of people. Right? Those are pretty spectacular things. All of this, very impressive, very spectacular. But notice how Jesus always does these things out of love. 
motivated by love and service and compassion, not for his own gain. Right? He often instructs the people he healed in private not to tell anyone about it. And whenever he does big public acts, they always spring from the depths of his heart. In Matthew 14, just before feeding the 5,000, it says, when Jesus landed off of a boat, he saw a large crowd. It says he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And then shortly after, in the same passage, is, is whenever he ends up uh, breaking the bread and, and feeding all 5,000 of them or more. See, Jesus is not out to make a spectacle. He's there to love and to serve. That's who Jesus is. And this shows us who we ought to be as followers of Jesus. We are not to be people of the spectacle, looking just for one impressive thing after another after another to fill our compulsions. In the Gospel of John, shortly after feeding the 5,000, there's a group of people who chase after Jesus, asking him, hey, put on another show. Do it again. And Jesus responds to them. He says, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. It'll distract us for just a little while. Uh, in, in, in youth group, often hearing a message that went something like, dream big, but ultimately it kind of became exhausting. After all that pressure and a little bit more loss for God. But to do small things in faith. Small things in faith. When Jesus illustrates faith in the kingdom, right? Little things in faith is what we're called to. It's all too tempting for churches to try to put on a big show, make something truly spectacular that's going to draw crowds, get people here. It's all too easy for churches and ministries to measure with the same metrics that the social media influencers do. I wonder, have any of you heard any of the stories recently about this kind of revival going on at Asbury University? Um, it's, it's kind of made a lot of uh, tension, a lot of headlines over the past few weeks. Basically, the story goes that one day they gathered together for their kind of regular daily chapel worship service, uh, and then it just never stopped. Uh, you know, I, I, as the service came to an end, there were some students who stuck around, continued singing some songs, said, hey, come down if you want some prayer. People stuck around, they kept singing, and then it just kept going for days and days through the night. For 16 straight days, this worship service continued. 
as students and, and faculty uh, and, and, and visitors and, and people streamed in to, to worship and, and listen and, and pray, right? I mean, this is kind of amazing story that's emerged over the last few weeks. But here's something that I really love about it. See, all of this was student-led. As soon as it started gaining attention, uh, the university started getting some calls from popular celebrity worship leaders or speakers trying to kind of jump in on the action, saying, hey, I'd love to come and lead worship for a little while. I'd love to come and, and speak. And that could have been a great opportunity. You know, a great marketing opportunity for the university, for that speaker or worship leader. But I love the, the university very simply replied, no thanks. Students have it covered. They knew what was happening was amazing, but they chose to not make it into a spectacle. We're not going to bring in celebrities to, to boost this thing up. God's already doing something, and that's all we need. Right? I love that. This is already amazing. It doesn't need to be a spectacle. To be honest, this is one of the things that I really appreciate about our own church tradition, Churches of Christ, right? For all the problems that Churches of Christ have, of which there are many, and I'll touch on one of them at least in a moment, but for all of those, churches of Christ have tended to stay pretty simple. Simple singing, simple space, simple gatherings. I really appreciate that. I think there's something really, really good to be said about that. We don't need to create a spectacle if we really believe in the power of God's word. But that's the problem that we see in the text. That's the other problem that we see. And, and this, I think, is the problem that churches of Christ have, have wrestled with the most. You see, the devil began by saying, throw yourself down. But then he continued by saying, for it is written. And he goes on to quote scripture. One writer describes the devil's words this way. He says, this wasn't a threat or a taunt or a dare. This was a sermon. Satan was preaching biblical text, citing parts of Psalm 91 to Jesus, verse by verse. Here, Satan showed his gift as an expository Bible preacher. See, what we have here is someone quoting holy words from the Bible in a holy place at the top of the temple. So you could easily assume that this must be a holy person, right? And yet, it's the devil. It's Satan who's speaking these words of Scripture in this holy place. You see, there are many ways of using Scripture that distorts its true meaning. 
There are ways of using ceremony, ritual, and worship to distort its true purpose. The French philosopher Jacques Ellul describes the temptation as a temptation to religion. This second temptation is the temptation to religion that we're so prone to. Now, we can argue about semantics and whether the word religion should be used in this way or, or you know, brought back. And Well, but true religion is this, right? That's, that's fine. But let me offer this uh, possible definition to work with, at least this morning. While faith in God calls us to give up control, Religion has often been a way of maintaining control over others and even often over God. So while faith calls us to give up control, religion has often been used as a way of maintaining control. See, when Jesus sees people with faith, he responds with utter delight. He loves it, right? A Roman centurion comes to him asking for Jesus very simply, say the word that my servant may be healed. And Jesus responds, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. A sick woman subject to bleeding for over a decade reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and he responds, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. A Canaanite woman approaches Jesus, asking him to heal her daughter, and after a good bit of back and forth, Jesus finally says, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. When Jesus sees people of faith, he responds with heartfelt delight in meeting them exactly where they are. On the other hand, when Jesus sees people merely with religion, he responds quite differently. In Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem on what is known as Palm Sunday. And from that point on in the Gospel of Matthew, there is this constant clash with the religious authorities. It begins right there in chapter 21 as Jesus enters the temple. Jesus entered the temple courts. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And it's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. See, these money changers had taken the sacrificial system that God intended as a means to provide cleansing and restoration for his people and turned it into a lucrative business for themselves. They'd set up stumbling blocks to salvation, and Jesus would have none of it. So he overturns their tables. This place was meant to be a gateway to prayer, not a hurdle to it. And then over the next few chapters, 
There are a number of these exchanges between Jesus and the religious elite. He tells parables, responds to their questions that are trying to trap him. But all of it ultimately comes to a head in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus finally lets loose. He says to them, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then he launches and seven times repeats this refrain, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you. Seven times in a row, he says to them, they shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They make converts, but don't build character. They value gold, but not God. They follow tithing laws, but neglect the more important matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Right? They look good on the outside, but they have dark and dead hearts. And each time, woe to you, woe to you, he says again and again. This is how Jesus responds to self-serving religion. Religion that seeks to control and manipulate people by giving them endless lists to check off and laws to keep. Religion that even seeks to control God himself, to manipulate God by quoting his words, but remaining far from his heart. This is the other temptation that the devil brings before Jesus here. He tempts Jesus to religious spectacle. And he does so by preaching the Bible to him. But Jesus responded in kind. It is also written, he says, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. In other words, you can't control God. Don't even try. Don't try to control God with your spectacle, with your religion. Instead, trust God and follow him. There are all kinds of ways that we put God to the test, that we seek to control and manipulate him. That French philosopher I mentioned before describes it this way. He says, we tempt God when we utter prayers that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. When we demand miraculous healing without questioning ourselves or drawing any spiritual teaching from illness. When we expect God to do everything in a particular situation without bothering to search for every possible means. When we want God to give himself, and yet we do not give ourselves. When we claim to bind God, with our rites and ceremonies and liturgies. And that's just a few examples of ways that we seek to test God every day. Testing God is, is ultimately about manipulating God into acting for us. 
it, in many ways, is about making ourselves God over God. Trusting, it's, it's about making ourselves God over God instead of trusting our Father and following him. It's that putting God in a box that we were talking about earlier. Jesus refused to do this. He refused to force God's hand. He refused to force his Father's hand, but instead trusted his Father. He would not manipulate God with an artificially created religious spectacle, like leaping off the temple. Instead, what Jesus does do is trust his Father to the very end as he goes to the cross, knowing that it will cost him everything, but that he would not be abandoned there. While religion seeks to stay in control, faith gives up control. That's what we see on the cross, a life that's surrendered to God and surrendered to others. And that's ultimately what we're called to. That's ultimately what we're called to, not shiny spectacle, not complex religion, but simple faith. Simple faith. Right? Some complicate faith by making it into a big show. There are others who complicate faith by making it into minutia lists of rules to keep and acts to do. But here's what Jesus says. Someone comes to him and asks, hey, what's the most important thing? What is most important? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. How do we sum up all of these complex commandments? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how. It's as simple as that. What is the true metric by which we should measure things? Well, if I speak in tongues of men or angels but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. No spectacle, however great it may look, is worth anything apart from love. No rule following, however disciplined, 
is worth anything apart from love. The desert mother, Alma Sincletica, said, salvation is exactly this, the twofold love of God and neighbor. It's that simple. Salvation is this, the twofold love of God and our neighbors. So here's the question I have for you this week. Is there some kind of small thing you might do in faith this week? No need for big spectacles. Is there some small thing you might do in faith this week? Some small act of service. Nothing flashy. A simple text of encouragement. An invitation to a meal. A kind gesture. Some small act of faith. Or maybe there's a small, there's an act of surrender that you're invited to this week. Some way of giving up control to God. Maybe there's a way of giving up our compulsion to spectacle. Our Lent book that we're reading through right now recently featured a word from Abba Poemen who said, whatever troubles you can be overcome by silence. And then the the book went on to challenge us to consider spending some time in silence instead of turning up the stereo or the TV or looking at whatever spectacular thing might pop up on our phones. What small thing might you do in faith this week? May we move from the spectacle to the simple as we follow Jesus in the wilderness. Amen.